The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. A bizarre sight emerges from a McDonald's dumpster. When a man is rescued out of the middle of the ocean, it seems like a miracle. But then, someone else is rescued as well. Let me take a look at the story of a man who grew up in a small town, a sleepy town, a town with no mysteries, until he realized an entire building vanished overnight. Today on Dead Rabbit Radio. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Dead Rabbit Radio. I'm your host, Jason Carpenter. I'm having a great day. I hope you guys are having a great day too. I hope you guys are strapped in for today's episode. First off, coming into Dead Rabbit Command, dressed up as a centurion. Not, not one of those cool guys from Rome. He's dressed up like one of those 1980s action figures. He's wearing one of those cheap costumes we all used to wear as kids. It's Escala. Everyone give a round Skull's Scala. like, come on, man, really? He's he's nine years old. He's walking in in a little cheap Centurion's costume. Skull, you're going to be our captain, our pilot this episode. If you guys can't support the Patreon, or if you're not power extreme, that's fine too. Just help spread the word about the show. Really, really helps out a lot. Skull, I'm going to toss you the keys to the Jason Jalopy. We're leaving behind Dead Rabbit Command. We are headed out to a local McDonald's. <laughs> old-timey car is driving us out here. This is actually a follow-up to yesterday's story. Yesterday's story was about the two-dimensional hobo that was floating through the wilderness. This story is actually a follow-up to that because when Elenemy, I think that was the person's name, posted the story about their experience with a two-dimensional hobo, someone else on Reddit had their own story. This comes from Darklancer2020. Now, in the previous story, we got like a we got the coordinates, so we were able to zoom in from space to where the story took place, and I applauded that. This story, we don't have a location, we don't have a date, so we don't know when this took place. But Dark Lancer was at a McDonald's with their teenage sons, and they got one of those orders at McDonald's that happens every once in a while where they don't have, they can't even produce that much food. So they had to go wait in the parking lot for the order to be finished. So they're waiting in the parking lot. And this McDonald's has a wooded area around the McDonald's, and they see a homeless person standing in front of the trees. And he's just kind of looking off in the distance. And then he begins flapping his arms like a bird and starts going, ka, 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 very loudly. Dark Lancer's watching this, and their teenage sons in the back start laughing. They think it's pretty funny to watch this guy pretend to be a bird. But then he stops. And he walks over to the McDonald's dumpster. Now, if you guys aren't familiar with McDonald's dumpsters, they stink, for one. But I don't know how common this is worldwide. In America, fast food dumpsters, and dumpsters in general, will have of private businesses, will have concrete walls around them. So you don't see this unsightly thing. You don't see a bunch of Big Macs overflowing from a dumpster as you've just ordered your Big Mac and you're driving away. They keep it so it's out of the prying eyes of the public. They have these large brick walls that section off the dumpster from the rest of society. The homeless man walks over to the dumpster. And then a few moments pass. And Dark Lancer's looking at that. 
And then he says a large black bird emerges from the dumpster. Ha! They didn't say it sounded like a pterodactyl. They didn't say it sounded menacing. But they saw a large bird fly away from the dumpster area. Now, obviously, if there's a bird in the dumpster, garbage does attract some birds. Someone walks over there, the bird's going to fly away. But Dark Lancer said they're sitting there, they're waiting for their food. The homeless man never emerges from the dumpster. They're waiting. Still nothing. Then the food gets brought out to them. And they're sitting in the car. Homeless man is still in the dumpster area. Eventually, they drive. <laughs> their, their food is all cold. They've been waiting there all night. Eventually, they do leave the area. The homeless man never emerged. And the story ends with, quote, I still to this day believe we witnessed the shapeshifter, unquote. There's a couple things. I mean, obviously, like I said, if there is a big bird in an area and you walk over, it's going to fly away. Homeless people around dumpsters is an unfortunate reality. So, it, it, I mean, that is a place he would go. Is this a story of a coincidence? Is there is this a story of a man making bird noises and then going to a place where birds are commonly seen? And then they didn't wait there forever, right? They're not like, until this day, I abandoned my job and I sat here. I live off McDonald's now. I work there and then I sit in my car waiting for the homeless man to emerge. Did the man emerge later? Was he eating out of the dumpster, which wouldn't logically make sense? Did they actually see a shapeshifter? Probably not, right? Unfortunately, it was probably a guy dumpster diving. But this is a paranormal podcast, and in the realm that we exist in, that would also make sense, that he's out there making the bird noises, and then he's like, oh, that was probably a little too loud. I might have given it away. And then he went to a place where prying eyes would not see him. Being a homeless person would be the perfect cover for... Yesterday we were talking about people coming from other dimensions and being mistaken for homeless people. But we've talked about this on the show as well. Being homeless would be the perfect cover for a cryptid. Because people just ignore you anyways. People aren't... I mean, obviously if you're eight foot tall Bigfoot, you're going to have a hard time walking through San Francisco whether or not you're a homeless person. But to a shapeshifter or a creature or something like that... Not only would it be a great disguise because people will ignore you, it'd also be a great feeding ground. You may have seen a shapeshifter. You may have just seen a homeless person. You may have seen both. Probably, though, was just a homeless person dumpster diving and you went home before he left the dumpster. Iskala, let's go ahead and leave this McDonald's. I'm going to go ahead and touch the keys to the Dead Rabbit rowboat. We are headed out to Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Splash! Splash. It's November 13th, 1961. There's this little dinghy floating in the water. And there's a big ship coming by. They see a man on this dinghy. His name is Julian Harvey. And he's cradling a young girl. The boat comes up alongside him. Gets him on board. And they find out that the young girl, 7-year-old girl named Renee, has passed away. She's dead. And Julian Harvey, he's a 44-year-old captain of a boat. And they go, what happened? You know, this wasn't your boat, right? You had more of a boat than just this dinghy. And he goes, yeah, guys, listen, this was absolutely terrible. And Julian says, okay, so here it is. I'm the captain of a or was the captain of a boat called the Bluebell. And we were chartered to take a trip from Fort Lauderdale to the Bahamas. The other passengers on board was, I, I'm recently married. My wife was on board. She didn't make it. 
I was chartered by a family, the Dopperalts. There was Arthur and Jean. Those are the parents. You had Brian, Terry, Joe, and Renee. Poor little Renee, seven years old. They didn't make it either. It's just me. And they go, what happened? He said there was a squall that knocked down the mast of the boat, which ended up rupturing an auxiliary gas tank. A fire broke out. The boat... I, I couldn't do anything. The boat just caught on fire. It started to sink. I grabbed Renee out of the water. But everyone else was lost. And I thought I had acted quickly enough, but obviously I didn't. And he points over to where Renee is laying. He goes, they didn't make it. She didn't make it. I'm the only survivor. And they go, that's terrible. Three days later, there's a freighter off the coast of Florida. And they see something in the water. This chunk of a boat is just floating there. And on top of that is a young girl just floating in the middle of the water. They bring her on board. She's borderline catatonic. She's super dehydrated. She has no idea what is going on. Eventually, she's able to say, my name is Terry Joe," And they airlift her to a hospital in Miami where she can get full treatment. So now they know there's two survivors of the Bluebell fire. And so when authorities let Julian know, hey, you won't believe it, there's actually been a huge miracle. He's like, what's going on? Terry Joe, the 11-year-old girl from that, she made it too. She's alive. It wasn't just you. Someone else survived the horrible, what you described, the boat falling apart and catching on fire. And Julian's like, oh my God, that is a miracle. That, oh my God, I'm so glad because I thought it was donezo. That is such a miracle, in fact. I'm going to leave my house right now. He's like, well, he's like, excuse me, officers. Excuse me, excuse me. I'm going to walk to my car right now. Officers, that is such a great miracle. I have something to do. And they're like, what? And he goes and he checks into a hotel room. And then later that night, he kills himself. Here's what actually happened. November 12th, the boat's headed back to Fort Lauderdale. The trip to the Bahamas is over. Everyone had, had a good time. And Terry Joe goes, you know what, guys? I'm going to go down down below deck. I'm going to take a nap. You guys you guys all good up here? And the family's like, yeah. And the captain's like, yes. Terry Joe goes, that's it's perfect. I always ask this question when I leave a room, making sure everyone's okay. I'm going to go downstairs and take a nap. She wakes up later to some horrible commotion going on above deck. And she's the only living witness to the story. So some stuff is still kind of pieced together because Julian is dead. But she hears this commotion above deck. And this is what the authorities have kind of pieced together. Julian had a wife who mysteriously died years prior. And he got some insurance money from that. So what they believe is Julian had planned to take his newly wed wife, his newly wed wife, out on this trip with his family, and to kill his wife and get away with it. But while he killed his wife and goes, ah ha the perfect plan, the perfect plan, on a contained location with several witnesses, I don't know if he knocked her overboard or if he poisoned her, there's never been any autopsy done, but he killed his wife. And while he was killing his wife, Dr. Arthur, Terry Joe's dad, saw Julian kill Julian's wife. So he has to kill Dr. Arthur now. And as he's killing Dr. Arthur, Dr. Arthur's wife and their two children, Brian and Renee, see him murdering Dr. Arthur. So now he has to kill all of them. 
So he tried killing his wife undiscovered. It's almost like a game of Hitman. We have to keep killing the witnesses. He kills his wife, gets discovered. Kills Dr. Arthur, gets discovered. Now has to kill the remaining three witnesses, the wife and the two kids. Terry Joe wakes up as he's murdering her family. Her dad had already been murdered and the wife had already been murdered. She wakes up when he's murdering the mom and the two other kids. Terry Joe had been napping through the whole thing, but she hears this. Now she's a witness to this. Terry Joe says he stabbed the brother. She saw him stab her brother. And he threw Renee overboard. He threw the seven-year-old overboard. He didn't stab her, but she does die by drowning. And he's planning on killing Terry Joe. And at the same time, scuttling the boat. He's going to make sure that the boat sinks. Because now things have really gone south. As he's trying to scuttle the boat, and as he's chasing after Terry with a knife, she hits the rope and releases his dinghy into the water. Now the boat is sinking, and Terry Joe is on the other side of the boat, and he has this knife and he needs to kill her, but his dinghy is going to float away if he doesn't act quickly. So he jumps in that little boat, grabs Renee and throws her on the boat, because that's now part of his cover story. See, everyone died, I was able to hopefully save this girl, but she drowned. And he's floating away in his dinghy, and he's looking back, and Terry Joe is sitting on this boat as it's sinking into the ocean. And he thought, she's never going to make it. She doesn't have any supplies, she's in the middle of nowhere, she's 11. So he figured she just went down with the ship. She was able to get some plywood, get some debris from the boat, and she just crawled on top of it and just floated. Now, there's obviously an alternate reality where this freighter did not discover her in time. Where either they found her and she was already dead, or they never found her. But they found her three days later. She went three days with no food, no water, floating on plywood in the middle of the ocean. And a boat happened to pass by. It's a crazy story. It's a crazy true crime story. And it seems, and in, in, in one sense, I'm not trying to make light of it, but it does seem comedic in the sense that the bumbling killer keeps finding more witnesses. We've seen stuff like that in comedies before, and that is a trope of the Hitman games. Like, you're like, oh, great, now i got to kill the concierge. And, oh, the waitress saw that. So it's like this kind of, like, thing. This was real. This real family got annihilated by this guy over insurance money. And it was each person turned the corner and saw him murdering the last person. Then he had to take them out. And Terry Joe happened to be sleeping through this. It wasn't until the very end, and that bought her enough time to have... Some sort of plan, even if that plan is just stay away from the knife as long as I can. And whether or not she hit that dinghy on accident or if it was some sort of miracle, because if he, she hadn't done that, he would have absolutely killed her and gotten away with it. It would have been another tragic lost at sea story. He'd gotten away with a previous mysterious death of one of his ex-wives. And I think even his ex-wife's mom was in the car, his mother-in-law. They both died in a mysterious car accident, so this... Crazy true crime story, though. A vicious mass murder in the middle of the sea. And he thought he got away clean. Until an 11-year-old girl clung to life, clung to hope that she could bring her family's murderer to justice. It's called, I'm going to go ahead and toss you the keys to the carpenter copter. We're leaving behind, we're waving goodbye to Terry Joe. That is an indomitable will 
We're waving goodbye to Terry Joe. We are headed back to... She's... We're not waving goodbye to her while she's on the raft. She's an adult woman now. We're waving goodbye to her at her house. We are headed out to Marietta, Pennsylvania. This is one of the stories I like, again, because we get a lot of specific locations with this story. Photographs of the area. I've personally interacted with this dude online. So there's a lot of stuff to back it up. Is the story accurate? Is the story true? Are his hypotheses correct? We don't know. But I do like the fact that I was able to go to Google Earth and this story as well and verify this location and try to figure stuff out. I found this online. It was from a dude named Opeth Ethereal. We're going to call this guy Chuck. I don't know if that's a real name. <laughs> if it is, I'm sorry for outing you, but we're going to call this guy Chuck. It's 2015, and Chuck grew up in this area of Marietta, Pennsylvania. It's a quiet little town, and he said it's one of those towns that felt a little off. Something seemed a little paranormal, but that could just be your imagination, right? If you look at a tree on a bright, sunny day, you go, oh, it's a tree, but that same tree after the sunset, it seems gnarled. It seems dark. Not just light-wise, but it seems malicious. So it could just be his imagination. Could be something underlying in the town. But as Chuck grows up in this town, there was a house that sat on the side of the road. There's a big field surrounding it. And him and his buddies would always play football in this field. So he was always in this location as a kid. And even as an adult, he would walk down this same road because from his house to Marco's, the local pizza joint, this was the way you would go. You'd go up and down this road. And he would walk because when he'd go to Marco's, he'd have a couple beers. That's being safe. You don't want to drink and drive. So he's constantly walking up and down the street for years and years and years. He's constantly walking back and forth in front of this house. He said it was a house like any other house. He didn't really pay attention to it. He knew it was there, but he didn't really pay attention to it any more so than he would any other house. On the other side of the street from this house is the GlaxoSmithKline warehouse. So you have this large parking lot on the other side of the street. And people who work there, if they want to smoke, they're not allowed to smoke at the warehouse where they have all these chemicals. They have to stand on the sidewalk right by the street to smoke. And Chuck would be walking down the street. He'd see them from time to time outside smoking. As he'd walk by the house, he'd see the people in the house occasionally. He'd see there was a family there. It was a husband and a wife, two kids. Young kids, little kids. And the husband had an older blue Mustang that he'd see kind of tooling on it every once in a while. But again, it's nothing that he's really thinking about. He's not suspicious of anyone in this house. He's not. He just You're around something all the time. You start to recognize it. It's that basic. One night, he's walking to Marco's to get some drinks. And he sees the husband standing outside the house. And Chuck looks at him, and the guy kind of looks at Chuck, and they just kind of do the little nod to each other. Like, I acknowledge you. Go about your merry way, good sir. You know what I mean? Like, you'll give that nod, kind of like it's a polite thing to do. And Chuck just continues on his way. On his way back, Chuck passes the house, and this time the blue Mustang is there, and there's a white van parked out front as well. The next morning... Chuck wakes up to go to Marco's to get some beer. He does mention at this point that he has a bit of a drinking problem at this part of his life. Because it's time to get a little bit of the hair of the dog that bit you last night. He's waking up in the morning to go to Marco's to get some more beer. Has a few beers. Gets some to bring home. And as he's walking down the street, as he's walking down this long stretch of road, he notices something. 
or he doesn't notice something, might be a better way to put it. This is a long stretch of road, and as he's walking down it, he can see in the distance, the house is gone. Slowly walking down the road, and he sees that the house does not exist anymore. Can't really wrap his head around it. Is he, is he that drunk this early in the day? He gets to the plot of land, and he realizes the area is completely covered up in grass. It's like nothing was ever there in the first place. The gravel driveway, grass. The plot of land, grass. The house is gone. The house he had seen just the night previous has been removed from the earth. Now across the street is the GlaxoSmithKline warehouse. And there's some guys out there smoking cigarettes. And Chuck walks over there and he goes, Hey guys, this might sound weird, but what happened to that house across the street? And the dudes are sitting there smoking the cigarette and they're looking over at this plot of land. They don't see anything. And they go, what What are you talking about? What house? Well, I know there's not a house there now, but what happened to the house there? I don't know what you're talking about. He said the people had no idea what he was talking about. So he comes to the subreddit, The Truth Is Here, which is a really cool subreddit if you're into paranormal stuff. To ask, what could this have been? Now, he drops Google Earth photos. He shows the coordinates, the address. You're able to verify all of this stuff. Because he basically wants to be convinced he's not insane. Which is kind of what we all want. He goes, using Google Earth, I can pull up a photo from 2011. Which shows the house. The house did exist in 2011. This story takes place in 2015. But by 2019, you look at a satellite view, there's no house. Another user jumped into the subreddit known as Stan the Brain, and he was able to find some other photos between 2011 and 2019. 2019 shows the house was not there. 2011 does show the house. Stan the Brain says, listen, based on photos that I found, and these are also all going to be posted in the show notes, you can look through these links. Between the year 2014 and 2015, the house was dismantled. There was a house there at some point. Someone probably bought it, took it apart. They are going to build something else on the land. It fell through. But that's what happened, Chuck. That's what happened. Somebody bought the house. It was slowly dismantled over time. That's how it disappeared. And Chuck goes, but that's not, that doesn't make sense. It was, had to have been dismantled overnight. 36 hours at the most. I saw it when I was walking home one night, and then I walked back. And he doesn't remember if he saw it on the way walking to Marco's, but when he was walking back that next day. He'd seen it the night before. He nodded to the dude, the husband in the house. And then he walks to Marco's the next day. Doesn't He can't remember if he saw it walking there, but on the way back he saw that it was indeed gone. Chuck does concede that it could have been dismantled over time, but... He didn't see it disappear over time. A white van that pulled up that night could not have disassembled the entire house. And for the grass to grow back, for the pavement to not be there, it doesn't make sense. Photographs of the house that exist, so we know it's not a figment of the imagination. Photographs of the house no longer existing. So we know the story isn't made up. The question is, what happened? Now, us in the paranormal world, we're obviously thinking Mandela Effect, alternate realities... 
time slips, vortexes that he's traveling through, all of that stuff. And that would explain, or at least make sense in the lore, where he was from a reality where the house used to exist, and then for whatever reason, he traveled to a reality where it doesn't exist. And that's where he's at now. It wouldn't explain why the house existed in 2011 in our reality, in photographs that we can see, and now it doesn't exist. So then you start thinking of things like the house did exist, but it got swallowed up by some sort of vortex. It disappeared overnight. Chuck wasn't the traveler to an alternate reality. The house was, and everyone in it. But there's no reports of missing people in the area. But again, if we're talking about quantum realities and things like that, maybe Mandela effect, people don't notice the family's missing and all of that stuff. We can go down these paths. And that's what we do, because we enjoy talking about this type of stuff. But this story opens the world up to something even more disturbing, I think. It's the idea of the world passing you by and you not even noticing it. Like, this man, the most rational answer is this man, Chuck, walked up and down the street for a year as the house was slowly being disassembled by the new owners. They were disassembling it, they were tearing it down. And he was in such a state of mind, whether it was because the alcohol was blurring everything or he was just not paying attention to his surroundings as much as he thinks he is, that a house could be demolished over the course of days or weeks and he doesn't notice it. And I find that creepier. Well, not necessarily creepier. Like, a house getting sucked into a vortex and that family being in another reality, not of their own, that's creepy on a theoretical level. We can imagine how creepy that would be. And you always hear parents say, yeah, turn around and my kid was 11 years old. Like, I swear my wife just came home from the hospital the other day and now it's like that. And I can't comprehend that. I can't comprehend that because I don't have kids, but they say time just passes you by. But it's even, it'd be, this is the equivalent of you coming home. There's an 11 year old kid. You didn't even know you had a kid. Hi, dad. Do you want to help me with my homework? And you're like, who are you and how did you get into my house? This is a complete wipe of a memory, of a year's worth of memories, gone. There may not be a paranormal answer to it. It may just be being not aware of your surroundings, not present in your own life. You have one existence and you're not even paying attention to what's going on in your life. Now, the fate of this home... It's not like he had to stand out there and take a photo of the house every day to remember it. I'm not saying that you have to remember everything. But this troubled him so much that he actually thought there was a paranormal answer to it. And there may be. There may have been. But I'm st- now that we're on this path here, he's so troubled by it, he's looking for help in the paranormal world where the answer may have actually been he had a, a, a drinking problem. And his brain was more focused on consuming alcohol than it was to noticing the world, something that had been there since his childhood, being removed and destroyed. It's one thing to be plucked out of your reality into another dimension against your will, or for you to build some sort of device and you're looking at the other scientists and you hit the button to test it and you're in another reality. It's another thing to be in this reality, the real world, and having your mind so clouded you can't even tell what's real anymore. That, to me, is more disturbing. A process could happen for weeks, and to you, it seems like it's just a day. You don't even know that it happened, and you're puzzled about this from 2015 to 2021. You spend six years trying to figure out what could have possibly have gone wrong. 
That's that that's that's disturbing on a different level. It's disturbing on a different level. And I think you would find some peace if it was a paranormal answer. Right? If you had an alcohol problem or any sort of drug problem or any sort of emotional issue, you're so wrapped up in some other thing going on, a personal issue going on that you can't even realize what how the world is changing around you, whatever it is. The paranormal answer would be the comforting one. The idea that, oh, there's no proof that this house ever existed. Maybe you imagined it. Or maybe it is the Mandela effect, glitch in the Matrix. I think the more dis- that would at least give you some comfort to go, well, I mean, I remember the house, but there's no photographs of the house ever. And no one in the area remembers the house. Maybe I imagined it. Maybe it was a dream. Maybe it was something paranormal. Versus... I suffered such mental decay between 2014 and 2015. An entire house that I knew since childhood was dismantled and I can't remember it. It has less theoretical implications as being distressing, but it's more disturbing in the real world. The truth of the matter is you don't need a ghost or a goblin or an alien invasion or a spooky mirror or anything out of the paranormal handbook to be disturbing. I hope for Chuck's sake that something paranormal did happen. It would actually probably be easier to live with than to know that he lost a year of time. Because if it happened once, who's to say it's not going to happen again? How many other times throughout his life will Chuck see such radical changes that he thinks it's paranormal versus just He's not taking care of himself. So Chuck, if you're listening to this, I hope you're doing better. I wish you a long and healthy life. And I also hope it's paranormal. Because if it's not, it's just too sad. DeadRabbitRadio at gmail.com is going to be your email address. You can also hit us up at facebook.com slash deadrabbitradio. Twitter is at Dead Rabbit Radio. Dead Rabbit Radio is the daily paranormal conspiracy and true crime podcast. You don't have to listen to it every day, but I'm glad you listened to it today. Have a great one, guys. Peace.